Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Douglas Saltis, editor-in-chief at technology site Betakit. I'm here. We're going to talk Twitter. Today, Douglas, we're going to talk about uh, how Twitter is ruined and I'm leaving forever, he tweeted. Also, break facts in case of emergency. Pesky truth continues to honk from the Emergency Measures Act inquiry. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to everybody by Alexander Johnson, Madeline Brewster, Nick Ackerley, Jason Bork, Michael Whitmer, Kristen Hines, Pamela Vernos, and Fee. Hey, my name's Fee, and I'm a leather worker and entrepreneur out here in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And I forgot I was paying for this shit. No, I'm just kidding. I gladly pay for this shit. In particular, the light candleland shines on smaller independent media publications, like the ones out here on the East Coast, like Cape Breton Spectator, Halifax Examiner, and The Independent. Thanks for all the work you do. Progressive celebrities are quitting Twitter after Elon Musk's takeover. I'm getting off today because I just feel like you know, it's, it's so messy. Now, Musk appears to be gutting the social media giant's 
content moderation team, and research is already pointing to a spike in racist slurs on the platform. One week after closing his $44 billion deal, Elon Musk began reshaping the company, beginning with layoffs. But no sooner had employees been locked out of their work accounts than some were reportedly being invited back by Team Musk. Elon Musk has reportedly discussed putting the entire platform behind a paywall. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Everybody's getting off of Twitter. All the journalists, Douglas, it's very fashionable. They're not really, they're like, I'm probably getting off. I'm I'm on Mastodon, but I'm not actually necessarily getting off. But I'm probably getting off because this is horrible. Stephanie Thomas at CTV tweets, it begins. Elon Musk has taken control of Twitter and fired its top executives. Journalist after journalist expressing Twitter has suddenly problematic. It was so good before, I guess, but uh, now I don't even know if I want to be here. All the journalists who are on Twitter every day calling it a hell site that they go back to every day now have suddenly decided that Twitter's no good. Andrew McDougall, a post-media columnist, it worries me that Elon Musk appears to conflate information dissemination on this platform with journalism. They are not the same. Yes, what some citizens produce is news, but most don't interrogate the source or qualify the information. They amplify what matches their views. This is in response to Elon Musk saying to journalists, you people are not the sole arbiters of truth. There's a lot of people out there who can do journalism. Well, no, say so many journalists. That is incorrect, sir. Sky is falling. Mass migration. Everyone seems to be setting up their Mastodon account. They're reading the Mastodon FAQ and they're realizing what's required to set up a Mastodon account and then they're not setting up a Mastodon account. I actually downloaded Mastodon. I started the process. What Uh, server did you join? And then it was like, do you want to be on the Dutch croquet server or the uh, Norwegian basket weaving server? And I said, yeah, I don't need this. Douglas, why am I supposed to suddenly hate Twitter? What's the problem here? Well, what is a social network, or Twitter specifically, if not a series of performative tweets? <laughs> I think the reason why you should hate Twitter right now as a journalist is because the person who owns it, who paid far too much for it, who hyper-leveraged himself to buy it too high of a price and is losing money by the day, is effectively working to undermine Twitter's value as a source of reliable information, despite everything he's saying. So I don't really give a damn about what journalists are currently tweeting about their verified status. I care about how the systems they're putting in place right now at Twitter are going to make it easier for the noise to continue to override the signal. This is becoming a pay-to-play platform for every single person who comes after every journalist for what they do diligently as part of their job. Okay. I want to dig into that with you. It's a whole different hellscape now, Jesse. Yeah. As of today, they're rolling it out. I'm not entirely sure how that differs from the hellscape that everybody's been complaining about forever now, but that's at least like more informative than what I've been hearing. Like the (laughs) default position is that we're all just supposed to accept that this is like Twitter is just evil. And who are we hearing that from is, uh, you know, it happens to be from a lot of legacy media that's threatened by by Twitter. Here, here's how the CBC had it. They had an expert on David Nasa, and this is how he characterized Twitter with no pushback on the current from Matt Galloway. I mean, it's going to be a clear and present danger, I think. And, and I don't want to risk that. Mm. I don't want any more Paul Pelosi attacks. I don't want any more invasions of the Capitol. I don't want any more invasions of uh, you know, an FBI office that is incited 
a clear and present danger. It is to blame for uh, attacks on politicians. It is to blame for the insurrection, the attempted coup. It's Twitter's fault. I find like some of these voices, I'm like, are you talking about Twitter or are you just talking about post-mainstream media universe where anybody can talk? It, it seems like a lot of people are kind of conflating like broader criticisms of just life under social media, life with the internet. What is it about Twitter today that is so different and outrageous from Twitter a month ago or a week ago? A week ago, it was a publicly traded technology company that was actually a media company that was trying to skirt the line of being both. Now it is a pet project of the world's richest person who has like a specific set of agendas in mind. And we can break this down in terms of like financially what's going on with the company or the fact that Elon hates journalists. He hates the people that write about him. And I, I think much of this criticism is coming from people that work at legacy media platforms that don't like Twitter anyways because it costs them money. They would rather have you go to the publication and read news there, but then also are so tired of engaging on Twitter to report or to cover the people that own it, right? Which way do you want to take this? Like the platform and what it enables or media's relationship to the platform. I want to talk about all of it. And and the first thing that I don't really understand is like, I understand that Elon Musk is a doofus who has the most punchable face and everybody does likes to dunk on him. And he desperately wants to be liked and he wants to tweet like with everybody else with funny memes. But it's like, sorry, dude, you're a billionaire weirdo and you're not one of us. And, and, and that is endlessly entertaining for people to take shots at him. I don't really feel otherwise, but why do I care? It's not like previous management was so great. What do I care what he thinks of journalists? Why does any of that matter? Well, because we've seen Twitter still be a platform that has enabled positive social uprisings, negative social uprisings, but like also can lead to harm. Like technology at scale has the power to affect massive change. And currently this punchable doofus owns like one of, if not the biggest social network, one of like the most hot button ones central to the conversation. I agree with the clip that you played. There is a huge capacity for harm here. Of course. Because the person running this thing, who also like eliminated all the teams that were focused on navigating this giant platform in ways that could potentially reduce harm and have correct information, are gone, right? I don't know that that's true. I, I heard that, that it was a 15% reduction in his moderation teams. And and like, if- Oh, that's the, that's the moderation team. Do we want to talk about the human rights team? Remember, like if we want to reference the Arab Spring and how Twitter was used in that, the ethical algorithms team, the responsible product development team, like- they cut half the company. It wasn't just like the percentage of the content moderators. I think that what we're discussing here is like an unsolved problem with moderation itself. Nobody has cracked moderation, okay? And if Elon Musk was saying, this is a free speech haven and there's no more moderation, then I would agree with the concerns. I would say, okay, like the, we know that just an unfettered, unmoderated space is, is incredibly dangerous, yeah. but he's not saying that. And in fact, the first thing he's doing that is radically different, I mean, b besides getting rid of a lot of the people who are involved in arguably insufficient and not working moderation techniques of the past. It's not like Twitter was doing a great job with moderation up till now. So the fact that there's some changes needed there, I'm not sure that I can like say, oh, that's bad that those people are gone or that they're trying things differently. I don't know enough about which of those things were working and which ones weren't. But I know that Twitter as a whole, like every other social media platform, had an ongoing tortured struggle with moderation that was not working. The main thing that he is doing and the thing that has enraged so many journalists might be a good idea, right? Up till now, there has been this special status that I enjoy on Twitter of a verified checkmark 
that was bequeathed to me on such arbitrary criteria that has shifted over the years. Like, I knew Steve, the guy who worked at Twitter. And one day he said, hey, how'd you like to be verified? And then later they had a system where you had to, like, file a more formalized thing to get verified. And then it was like the mafia were like, sorry, the book's closed. Uh, and for a while you couldn't get in. And then they reopened it with that more detailed process where you had to kind of, like, justify where you were coming from. That's right. How Baedeke got verified. So maybe that was better. But meanwhile, like— Ezra Levant has a verified checkmark. Ezra Levant is also very happy about the new system that they just rolled out today. Let's explain to people what the new system is because not everybody knows. Yes. And the new system is, this is no longer about you happen to be a journalist with a news organization that's filled out a form or you happen to know Steve at Twitter or whatever it is. Now what they're saying is, if you use your real name and pay us eight bucks a month, you get a check mark. Now that is going to be imperfect because there are going to be bad actors who like a hundred bucks a year is not going to stop them, but it's going to stop a shit ton of them. A shit ton of the automated bot activity, a shit ton of the bad actors, just putting a little bit of a barrier between them and having not just like the check mark, but of course the algorithm is going to favor. Now I'm suffering for this because so few people had those check marks that I enjoyed algorithmic favor and a nice little bit of prestige on this platform that now I'm going to have to share with every schmo who can afford a hundred bucks a year. Yes. I remember covering what they called the Nim Wars with Facebook. Like if we force people into using their real names on social media, does that improve the discourse? And it was very controversial because there are use cases where anonymity is, is important and anonymous speech is, is valuable. And it's sometimes with journalistic sources. Sometimes it's, I don't know, a kid who's in the closet in a small community trying to find a community, forcing them to use their real name. There's all kinds of like cases where you can say that anonymous speech is great, but in a broad sense, people act shittier when they're anonymous online. And we're never going to fully solve moderation, but that technique, Elon Musk stepping in and saying, if I could do one thing that's going to improve the quality of the discourse, and Twitter is a forum of a small group of people who tweet and a much larger group of people who read. And if we can basically take the people who actually tweet and say, okay, from now on, the ones who are going to get algorithmic favor are going to be real human beings. By and large, people are going to slip through, but they're going to be real human beings. As a broad stroke, I feel like I'm really curious to see if that might work. That sounds like a good idea to me. Sounds like a great idea if they were implementing that, but they're not. And I think you need to parse the difference between what Elon's saying and what they're implementing. And just even the fact that Elon is saying a variety of different things, which like fundamentally conflict with each other. On the, the real name thing, just scrolling through his replies today, he's noted that using your real name is not going to be a condition of this. The person responsible for the new Twitter Blue product that rolled out some announcements last evening, which have, are already being implemented like right now on the way here, I was checking to see because they've added a secondary verification uh, status, this official status. Betakit is official. Candidland is not. How did uh, that happen? Th the national is official. Well, let's just focus on what you were talking about. The old system of verification that you now pay for, for real people, they're not actually doing any identity verification. They are not checking who you are. They are just verifying. But Elon Musk told me that, that that was what was going to happen. And then the product manager who can write coherent sentences has rolled out a set of tweets laying out what the product's actually going to look like. And it's not that. So they they're are not, not going to ask you what your real name is? They're not going to verify your identity at all for the new Twitter blue, which will lead to the new verification, which was the old verification. So you're just going to have a bunch of people who can maybe crowdfunded this, be funded by a variety of entities who, if they're able to pay $8 a month, 
will have content that not only has an algorithmic priority, but is will be put on the level of any other journalist official entity that still has that traditional with eight bucks a month, I can get mega Pepe four three nine, and no one no one cares that that's verified. Pepe verified. Eight we, bucks a month. And is are we still in a, in a in a state of confusion as to whether that's true because we're getting conflicting things from Twitter? Uh, well. <laughs> Or is that by is that, by the time this episode goes out, they might be offering like a free U two album and a taco with every like Twitter Blue subscription. I want to be a star bellied snitch, which is also important here. I think the intention behind this yes. is to note official entities, government figures, and media outlets, and leave every individual journalist that struggles with the vast swamp of negativity that they receive uh, on social media and elsewhere just for doing their jobs to be in a one-on-one knife fight with every other blue check that's willing to pay $8 a month. This is how he creates a two-tier system. Well, it was already a two-tier system. <sighs> a two-tier system based upon entities that have been verified for a reason other than money and who have been checked to mark their personal identity. Like, I had to submit information to prove that I'm myself. That is a much higher bar for someone who's looking to engage with Twitter and, and and know that when I'm reporting on Canadian tech, when I'm speaking to journalism, that this is coming from this actual publication, this actual place. That is very different than someone who's willing to pay for, you know, the TSA pre-check to get through early. But sure. Like, those but, are now equated equally on the platform. Well, listen, there are factors here that are ambiguous in the chaos and that we'll see where the dust settles. When we talk about the difference between the arbitrary editorial hidden criteria that led to a two-tier system of Twitter in the past versus the arbitrary system that is going to dictate things now, I think the jury is out as to which one's going to be better. There's an advantage of the $8 thing. Now, as you say, eight bucks isn't much of a barrier if you're really dedicated on spreading misinformation or hate. However, we know as people who run technology companies, as soon as you put a paywall in front of anything, you are reducing the sheer number of people you have to deal with by probably more than 90%. Yeah, but we also know that a small amount of misinformation that is selective and targeted can spread like wildfire across the system. But if we are now going to be limiting the people who get the most algorithmic favor on Twitter to less than 10% of the overall Twitter usership, then that is the gargantuan task of moderating Twitter, which as far as I know, I'll check Elon's account, they're still committed to moderating. They now have 90% less content to moderate if they're trying to weed out hate speech and misinformation. That seems to me like there might be a really big advantage there. But you've given me some things to think about in terms of just like the chaos of Elon Musk and- Chaos is the product and the plan. I'll say this. This is not a huge defense of some schmuck individual on my part. The bigger thing is that Twitter is great, and I've never been. It's great. <laughs> Love. There's nothing better than a great tweet. It's better than sex. It's better than the cigarette after sex. It's perfect. I love tweets. Twitter is my home. 85% of Canadians thereabouts don't even fuck with Twitter, okay? I still feel like what we're going to get out of – it's not going to happen. Everyone's threatening to go to Mastodon. No one's going to Mastodon. But if we were to have this happen and people were to actually – take their toys and leave and go home, what we're going to end up with is a completely fragmented, we're going to lose the public square. And as messy, and I understand my experience on Twitter is different than a lot of people's. And to be super clear here, I don't want this to get lost or misconstrued. Moderation matters a lot. And my experience on Twitter, though it's been bad and abusive at times, the kind of tweets I get, it's nothing like what a lot of other journalists and female journalists and journalists of color get. And that cannot be deprioritized 
as these changes are made. But as messy and as imperfect as Twitter is, it is amazing to me that this far along into social media, we still have one app that hasn't really changed much since like 2007, where we all talk to each other. And I'll say something here. It is still a platform that favors high quality information. Give me a second here. If I have a huge news scoop that I can back up, I can create a Twitter account today from scratch. If I have no Twitter presence, if I go on Twitter and create an account and I post the evidence of this very important piece of information, I can prove that it's true and I tag the people that are implicated by it. And, and if I tag a couple of journalists who cover the area of interest, that is probably the best option I have for that actually being major national or international news by that evening, right? That one tweet out of millions and millions will get repeated and replicated and verified. And I will go from anonymity to actually breaking into the news cycle. And I, and I speak here as a journalist who was essentially a nobody who had a huge scoop. And I let Gian Gameshi and my bosses at the Toronto Star know, this is not going to be spun. And this is not going to be spiked. This story is coming out. And I use Twitter to do that. And it is a powerful tool for journalists that I kind of owe my career to. So I, I stand for Twitter. I, 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 I agree with you on a lot of this, but I think we have to, I want to go back to the citizen journalism thing because we need to separate the messaging and how this is being presented with the reality of how it's being implemented. I didn't graduate from J school. I run an independent media publication. All my employees are journalism graduates. We have to fight tooth and nail with every story that we break for respect from the traditional media. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that we have earned our verified status through a process of doing journalism. What Elon you, you, is saying— You might deserve it for that process. That's not how you earned it, though. That's it not, is. We had to apply. We had to demonstrate our work. We had to showcase that our news was timely and relevant. Like, we we were not added in because I knew Cam Gordon. I we have, were added I, in because we applied yeah, through the process. Neither and, you or I know if that process is is letting in the right people and, and letting out the wrong ones. But because we're both in it, we, we have an interest to say it's a good process. No. Well, no. And I would say that even when we weren't being included, I, I would note the reasons why. It's, it's At least it's still a process based upon some principles. Now, in the Citizen Journal, there is nothing— preventing citizen journalists from engaging on the platform today. That is very different from paying $8 and then being positioned on the platform at the same level as every other journalist willing to pay that that fee for the work that they do. It's like, terrifying, isn't it? We're actually going to have to have good things to say. We're actually going to, like, it's not just the check mark. We're actually going to have to no, say things of value. No, it's that journalists are going to have to justify their process, their work, Oh my the God. standards that they're hold to every day yeah. in addition to doing the work while still being attacked by those people who can just pay $8 a month. This isn't about citizen journalism. This isn't The issues here aren't one of, oh, hey, journalists have felt this special status and we're losing it. I've seen tons of complaints from journalists and, like, and you were playing off the top of like, oh, I don't want to be seen as paying $8 a month for like basically what my career and ethics are standards Why about. wouldn't these journalists pay eight bucks a month? Like I, I never really tweeted until it was professionally an advantageous tool for me. I tweet sometimes and, I, and a million people read that tweet. I'm able to promote my work. It's a professional tool. So why wouldn't I spend $8 a month on a professional tool? I don't understand that part of the whining either. Like, I understand. That there are, I would free, say there, there are some it. journalists and publications that might not be able to afford that. And, and and we have to look outside of a North American context. There are tons of journalists who have used Twitter in similar ways in nations with governments who are far more aggressive on the rights and health and safety of journalists. And 
that like Twitter has been a way for them to get that out and and kind of to be sheltered a bit by the platform and the verify says. Now they are at the same level as anyone who just pays the thing. Do you not see that how that is a devaluation? You're of only what that on means? the you're only on the same level in the way that the internet makes us all on the same level. We're, like no one is greater than anyone else. You're just a node on the network. Your value will be the credibility that you earn. Except your value that, will be the followers that you earn. Your uh, value is based on what you say. So now it's all about attention. I, and I, I it's find it interesting to me that in the hypothetical situation that you laid out with a, a new account with information, there was still a component where, hey, they can share this out, get tons of retweets, this can spread like wildfire, and they'll still tag some journalists because there are a subset of individuals that want information curated for them or vetted. And journalists are the professionals. In they some don't form want it curated or vetted. They want it boosted. And the system is that because journalists... The, the way that the system should work, you tag a journalist because if they pick it up and retweet it, which will require them vetting it, you will basically be able to piggyback their credibility. That's not a bad system. I feel like we're on different circles of hell here. I don't know if you're like the ninth <laughs> level and I'm the sixth. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Douglas, we duly note news stories and things that require wider awareness. I would like to duly note a comment from our Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month 
And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now. You don't want to watch Disney anymore. Let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving, but every little bit helps. And I think every mother in Canada is doing that right now. So I don't have to duly note that comment because it got widespread coverage and it was picked up as a political uh, hot button point by Jagmeet Singh and, and others to say, you are out of touch, Freeland, if you think that the serious financial concerns the Canadian families are facing right now can be alleviated by cutting your Disney Plus subscription. I think I want to duly note that that's, that's a bullshit, cynical spin on what Freeland actually said. I'm going to stand up for Freeland, I suppose, or just a, like, yeah. I'll, I'll stand up for what happened, I guess, which is that, yeah, she wasn't saying that this is how everybody should deal with the recession. That's not what she was saying. She was saying that the same approach that she's taking to her family finances is what the government needs to take to the budget, okay? And and she even apologized. And it's like, you know when people, like, they know they're beat, so they apologize as opposed to what they really want to say, which is like, fuck off. Fuck off, you dummies. That's not what I said. So here's her apology. Um, of course. Look, I think I want to start by really recognizing that I am a very privileged person. For sure. Like other elected federal leaders, I am paid a, a really significant salary. And I know that that puts me in a really, really privileged position. That's so painful to listen to. You can to. hear her chewing through the shit in her mouth as she's going oh, through that. Ah, oh, you assholes. So it's like, it's Christia Freeland's weekly apology for being a privileged person. So I'll duly know that she got a raw deal with this one. But you know what? I'll, but I'll also uh, slam her for like what she actually should be apologizing for. And no one else is going to stand up for them. But Douglas, I'm going to stand up for Disney here. Because... This is happening at a time when the government has their hands in Disney's pockets, right? We're going to be putting in place new legislation that's going to require Disney to fork over vast sums of money for CanCon production. And Disney, meanwhile, is fighting back and saying, look, we've already spent, they claim, according to Michael Geist, they claim that they spent $3 billion on CanCon production. So here they are. They've obviously been spending money already on Canadian productions with this legislation in mind. It didn't work. They're going to be forced to spend untold money from now on. And the fucking deputy prime minister tells everybody that it's okay to cut Disney Plus subscriptions, which go ahead, cut your Disney Plus subscription. I have some other options for you if you do have that freed up. But I would be a little bit pissed off right now. She didn't say cut your Crave subscription because then you wouldn't get to watch Justin Trudeau on No, 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 uh, because then we would have to have a conversation about the Competition Bureau and what's happening with that. I take back everything I said in the first segment. Any journalist that like cover the story should have all Twitter privileges revoked because this is a nothing burger of a thing. It's a waste of time in the discourse. And we might actually see more of this on Twitter going forward. More political footballs tossed around, duly noted. What do you have for us, Douglas? Okay, so obviously the big political provincial story has been the QP strike, which I think has been pretty instructive. This is where I go after another Doug because we've now learned the levels of public shame and vitriol required for this provincial government to like walk back decisions, but that's not the only provincial story of import that's going on right now. The province is also looking to remove about 7,500 acres of the Greenbelt to, air quotes, produce 50,000 uh, homes. There's a consultation on this. I assume the level of public response to this has to be higher than the QP strike simply because in 2018, Doug Ford 
actually said he wouldn't touch the green belt, so he's already walking back another promise. But I want to duly note this narwhal story by Emma McIntosh, which points to what happens when people think no one is paying attention. Essentially, the story covers how 90% of the lower Dufferin's Creek wetland has basically been cleared away. Mm -hmm. And the TRCA, the Toronto and Region Conservation Authority, doesn't know what happened. The Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources doesn't know what happened. And Triple Group, which owns the property, was like, uh, we think it was for farming. This wetland is noted in the just wonderful story by Emma McIntosh, has the status of provincially significant, which means that experts have deemed it so valuable it should be protected from development. And of course, the province had already tried to strip that away and change rules in 2020, but backed off uh, last year due to unified public pressure. And then the land got stripped anyways, mm -hmm. 90% of it. The penalty for doing this, guess, how much would this cost for um, just absolutely destroying uh, provincially significant wetlands? I'm not going to play your little game. It's $10,000. $10,000. A big nothing burger. Yeah. So, hey, paying teachers, great. Kids in school, great. There are some things we can't get back, and the people who want to develop the Greenbelt don't think you're paying attention. And we need more reporting like this highlighting what's going on when people are talking back and forth about Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it's a really important scoop from the Narwhal, duly noted. Douglas, it is crowdfunding month here at Canada Land, and what I want to duly note this crowdfunding month is that we don't exist. Canada Land doesn't exist, and you, for that matter, your tech site, BetaKit, you don't exist either. At least neither of us officially exist to the Minister of Heritage, Pablo Rodriguez. Here is how he described the situation when he was talking about his online news act to parliament recently. I want to start by stating facts. 468. 468, that's the number media outlets, newspapers, television, radio station, news websites that have closed between 2008 and last August. And 78 of them closed since the beginning of the pandemic. This bill is about them. It's also about the future of, of journalism in our country. Wow. 468 newsroom closures since 2008. That is an alarming statistic. We all know that things have been bad, but that's really bad. You know what, Douglas? He forgot the second half of that statistic. The same study that told him that 468 news organizations closed also says that 207 news outlets launched. And your company was one of them. And Canada Land was one of them. And there are 205 other ones that stepped into this horrible industry, this market. Like, what a risky thing to do to launch a newsroom in the last 15 years. But we did it, you and I. And yet we're edited out of this history that the Heritage Minister is presenting, this history of just closure. And that's a history that, as he directly says there, informs the future. And, and he's stepping into the future. He needs to ensure that future. But we're not a part of the picture. Let me actually modify that because he, he, he did sort of allude to us as he went forward. He, he made reference to some of these new websites and the words he used, he said that when newspapers close, the things that replace newspapers are extreme and bad. That's all he had to say about the new news organizations, extreme and bad. Now, when he was describing the legacy newspapers, he used very nice words like independent, neutral, nonpartisan. And he was sort of setting up this dichotomy of the good news that he's there to protect and the bad news that he's there to defend Canada against. And 
what was super interesting to me was reading that that's almost exactly how the National Post described things. They had a masthead editorial in support of his bill, Bill C-18, which also bashed news organizations like yours and mine. It put in square quotes the phrase independent organizations, like their, their, their supposed independence. And the Post wrote that organizations like yours and mine are not offering the local news coverage that was once provided by local papers. Instead, many of them provide national opinion content that relies heavily on the original reporting conducted by large media companies, and few of them live up to the journalistic standards Canadians have come to expect. Wow. I mean, it is true that we do opinion on this show, which is the same thing that the National Post does quite a bit of. It's also true that, like Post Media, we do a lot of original reporting, and 200-some-odd other news organizations, a lot of them have actually opened up in markets where Post Media has closed newspapers. But no, all that needs to be said about us is that we're not up to standard, I guess, the National Post's standards. I don't know. Like, this is, like, really serious stuff. It's not just about that there are insults flying back and forth here. It's, it's that this is a debate about who's going to live and die. The future of Canadian news hangs in the balance of this. And all I'm hearing are, like, really subjective opinions. You know, talk about the difference between reporting and opinion. That's like the heritage minister selectively choosing statistics and bringing a lot of opinion about what kind of news he likes and doesn't like. And that's uh, the National Post's opinion that they're good and the rest of us are bad. But I actually want to present our listeners with some, with some facts here. And we have facts because we've been doing this media bailout thing in Canada for two years now. You know, the government stepped in a couple of years ago and started flooding millions of dollars into some newsrooms and not others. You know, legacy news organizations have, have gotten the lion's share of this money. And all of this is, is towards providing good information that people trust. But a recent Maru public opinion poll that just came out, this is an alarming statistic. We all know that trust in news is down. The trust in established news as a trustworthy source of information in the public that has dropped by 7% in just two years. The same two years where they're saving the media, trusted media, independent, neutral media, the public's trust has, has dropped by 7%. And that same Maru Public Opinion Survey shows that young people are just fleeing legacy news in droves. So government is pumping money into the newspapers and, and young people are not reading them. And those that are asked about this trust those newspapers less than ever. And maybe some of us who are saying, listen, if the government is funding the news, people are going to trust the news less. Maybe there's some substantiation for that in these recent statistics. This is a crowdfunding message. Our statistics, our research of our audience tells us that 74% of Canada Land's audience is under 45. We are just one of over 200 new news companies that have launched. And I want to say like, People listening to this who give a damn should support the ones that they value and the ones that they trust. I think what we're doing here is the opposite of what the heritage minister is saying. We are not here launching a news site in the interests of stoking division and saying, if you already believe a bunch of things, come over here and we'll affirm your biases and we hate the people that you hate and we'll give you ammo. No, I mean, we're doing something very different. I know you are too at Beta Kit. We're actually just trying to fill the void. 
And we started by filling the void in media reporting and media criticism, and we moved on to better political coverage, and we moved on to accountability journalism and investigations that were not being done by anybody else. And that's what we're asking people to pay for. And, you know, it hurts my feelings that the heritage minister doesn't seem to think we exist or know that we exist or that we don't factor into his plans. But I value very highly the fact that I don't have to care what the government thinks about Canada land because our supporters keep us independent and we don't take media bailout money and we don't have to because we are fueled by the people who listen to this and who value it. And I'm asking people out there who value it. This is the month that we want you to step up and show your support for us. We don't have to wait for the government to dictate the future of news journalism in this country. We have a dynamic and immediate way of doing that ourselves when you fund Canada land, we take that money and we investigate news stories. It's as simple as that. Uh, so I'm going to ask everybody to please go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in their show notes. This is the month when we ask people to step up and help us. I'm asking. Yeah. We've been a Canada land supporter for years. Launched our Patreon with an eye towards kind of what you had started initially. Duly noted. Okay, Douglas, I want to quickly revisit the hearings over the Emergency Measures Act, the inquiry that's taking place right now. And here's what that sounded like in recent days. An inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act is shedding more light on the darkest moments of the so-called Freedom Convoy. Mayor Drew Dilkin spent most of the day on the stand, also testifying the blockade could have ended a day earlier. Behind the scenes, infighting between organizers. I have the tears of thousands of Canadians on my shoulder who every day told me that we were bringing them hope. Police leaks also helped the convoy entrench Jeremy McKenzie, the founder of Diagonal. A federal court judge has ruled that Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Health Minister Sylvia Jones will not have to testify at the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa. Okay, so I'm breaking format here because I don't really have much to say about the coverage. I think the coverage has been fine. I actually just feel like this is this was the biggest story in Canada uh, almost a year ago. It was international news. Now we're getting the facts about it, and I, I just feel like people should be paying very close attention, and I want to get everybody up to date if you've been sending this one out. We already had some revelations last time we spoke about this. We found out that we were lied to. We were told that the police were the ones requesting that the federal government enact for the first time ever the Emergency Measures Act. That turned out to be a lie. It's not true. We also found out that Premier Doug Ford lied when he said that he sent 1,500 OPP officers deployed to clear the protests in the streets of Ottawa. That was something that uh, we found out was incorrect through these hearings. And since we last spoke, uh, we've learned some more things that I think are really important. We have learned that the federal government knew a day before they invoked the Emergency Measures Act that the Alberta border crossing was cleared. This is a national emergency they declared, and they declared it a day after they learned that this really was only something that was that was of concern in Ontario. And so clearing that very concerning blockade at the border, that was done and dusted before we had the Emergency Measures Act. We also learned that what we had thought was true, that this was something that was funded by foreign interests, that a lot of the money coming in for the Freedom Convoy, we heard all sorts of things. It was coming from radical extremists in the States. It was coming from Russia. It was coming, it was dark money. No. What we found is that $24 million and the vast majority of it, like it is not a significant part of that money that came from outside of Canada. Envelopes of cash, cryptocurrency, small donations, 24 millions, most of which they did not actually get their hands on. And this is an important one. 
We learned that CSIS told the federal government before they invoked the Emergency Measures Act that there was no threat of ideologically motivated violence. And this was something that I was very concerned about, but facts are facts. And CSIS had facts that we didn't have at the time, and the federal government had those facts too. And the facts were that there was no threat. However, CSIS also warned the government that invoking the Emergency Measures Act was a threat, that if they invoked it, it would likely escalate the possibility of violence, not at the protest, but afterwards. That you know, what do the protesters say in, in, I think, ridiculous terms is that this is a tyrannical prime minister who steps outside of the law to seize power. And I think that's a ridiculous argument. But giving justification to that argument by stepping outside of our rights to seize power briefly could radicalize people further, said CSIS, that if government seized extraordinary powers, that could make things worse and divide the country more. That's what the government was told. They did it anyhow. And when they did it anyhow, they said the reason why they were doing it was because of the threat of terrorist violence, which they had been warned was not actually a threat. So I think those are some really important revelations from the hearings that go against what we thought was true. And then there's other information that I just think bears further inquiry. Like we, we heard one of the organizers say on the stand that police at all levels were providing information to the protesters. We suspected that was the case. It's not verified. This is just one of the- And their lawyer said it, I believe. And they said it on the stand, and that leads me to, I want to know the truth about that. And I wonder what the process is for finding out which cops, if any, were providing information. I'm just flabbergasted that knowing that Doug Ford lied about sending OPP officers and- knowing that, as I've been saying consistently, this is a provincial matter that the cops had powers to deal with. So for me, that means that we need to hear from Premier Doug Ford. And the courts have now decided he doesn't have to testify. Getting out on a technicality. And somehow, I guess there's a bunch of other news around Doug Ford these days. So like that seems to be something that is like overshadowed by other rage towards Doug Ford. But for all the facts that are coming out of this process, we're not going to hear Doug Ford defend or even just answer for what he did not do during this crisis. So yeah, I, I wanted to bring people up to date who, uh, who, who might not have been following that. And I want to refine something I said before. It's not, again, that this is not getting coverage. And it's not even that people don't care about it, which is, I think, what I said before. I think it's just that, like, here's some polling, an abacus poll, 63% of people polled believe that the government made the best choice it could in the circumstances to use that law to deal with the situation. And I think the point that I want to like crystallize what I have to say about this is, is really a question more than a point. It's like, what factual information, if any, would move people from that? For the people who feel like this was the right thing to do based on their understanding, is there any change to the understanding of the situation that would modify people's position that maybe, maybe our rights matter and should only be superseded if criteria are met. And if those criteria are not met, maybe you shift your position on whether this was a good thing to do or not. It's interesting because I am, this is not my beat. I am truly approaching this as a Canadian citizen and media consumer who has struggled to keep the slow drip of testimony briefings in context with what the experience was in January and February. I actually think that the way that we're approaching this and reporting it by testimony, by new revelations, is actually harming our nation's conception of, like, how this went down. Because you have, you, you played the Tamara Lich clip, you have Pat King on the stand just saying in, incredible things. Like, 
Pat King, the prime minister needs to catch a bullet. There's no way this is going to end in violence, saying that his conversations with police were all about safety because he's just a big safety guy. And that is being presented in these daily rundowns of testimony without context relating to what we either experience as Canadians or watched live in real time. So I don't know if there's a big revelation about this. Certainly the communication with uh, police officers, the fact that the deputy minister was receiving at least email death threats related to this, and earlier this year was also accosted elsewhere in the country just on kind of routine business. Certainly there was like threatening intent, which I think you've discussed on this mm-hmm. podcast. I actually think that the more that we go looking for silver bullet facts or present testimony from people who have had several months now to prepare their story for this is actually doing harm. I, I was so It's doing harm. Yeah. Even this, the, the sob story, but the quote of just being like, this is all about, Tamara saying like, this was just the number of suicides that were happening, that there was no motivation or plan behind this. Where She was one of the several people standing there at that press conference demanding that the prime minister step down or that the government be replaced. I do not see reporting of what is being said today during these hearings in context with like the actions that took place and the general sense of like uncertainty as to what was going to happen next. And I struggle as a news consumer to stay up with what's happening and to either care, get a full context of it, or not have like what we experienced as a nation kind of be undermined by just rote presentation uh, of, hmm. of the hearings. Like, I mean, Douglas, the hearings are not a trial of the organizers, the, which, which will come in time in some cases. The hearings are a trial of the government. And that's who's on the stand and that's whose decisions are being scrutinized here. And that, and that's who has to clear a very high hurdle to justify what they did, which is a historic seizure of power. I agree. But then why are we presenting the organizer's testimony verbatim without context on what was transpiring? That's my okay. issue. I actually think there was a Globe editorial board op-ed about this that I think nailed it. Like, first of all, th- these hearings are happening by necessity, because they're triggered by using the Emergencies Act. Like yeah. it's, it's a necessary motion. And the government's going to have a very high bar to justify that there were no other laws that could have been used to stop this, even though the polling indicates those laws weren't necessarily being enforced or, or— That's not the hurdle. The hurdle isn't whether they were being used properly. It's whether they were there. And what you're watching happen and where this is moving next, and we're going to watch this in weeks ahead, is I think you're watching the federal government's case fall apart. Potentially. One addition to that, I would say, the other thing that editorial said was, it actually doesn't matter what the organizers thought, what they cared about, why they were protesting. I agree. And we are giving far too much attention to their motivations, their backstory, their characters, when none of that has an impact on what this hearing is for. Yeah. And I'm kind of just sick of seeing it. That shortcut. Douglas, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand, not on Mastodon. You can email me at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read everything that you send, and our website, CanadaLand.com, is where you can find uh, the new season of Commons on Monopolies. You've got to check this out. Douglas, where can people find you? You can find us at BetaKit.com. You can find me still on Twitter, at Tron. And uh, for this audience particularly... I would strongly recommend checking out the award-nominated Beta Kid podcast. We absolutely got crushed by Amber Mac, but we have an episode coming out this week on a Canadian tech startup 
that is trying to change the internet by inventing a new way for us to consume information. So, highly topical. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by so-called syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, if you value independent journalism, please support us now. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism, and you will get, as a supporter, premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You will get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you will become a part of the solution to the journalism crisis in Canada. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.